Hello and welcome everyone to Hollywood's Haunted, the podcast where we talk about spooky stuff, Hollywood adjacent and related. And uh, today we are talking about exorcisms. Dun dun dun. Ooh. Speci- Ooh, yeah, specifically two <laughs> exorcisms that were featured in pretty pretty famous films, I guess. I'd say they're pretty famous. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh tonight I'm why am I umming and uh uh ooh, uh uh um um <laughs> maybe you're possessed, Tia. You might be maybe possessed. I am. It is just tongues. It's not the <laughs> amount of exhaustion. Speaking in tongues. <laughs> um, that's what it is. Yeah. Yep. Um, so, <laughs> so uh, I'm Tia. Hey, I'm the host of the show. And we have Patrick here as well. And Teresa. Yay. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. Uh, so Teresa hopefully will be coming out with her own podcast soon as well. Yeah, working on it. That she is working very hard on, and more, more to come in the future. Yay! More to come. Yay! Stay tuned. We'll look look forward to that. Yes. Me too. We'll be editing more other things. And eating the cats, and hopefully making me more coffees in the future, um, and picking up the slack when I don't want to do research because I am overly exhausted, like he did for this episode. Um, so he will be talking a little bit about my topic because I got lazy slash Ooh. burned out. I just got burned out, you know, no, and I just, just kidding. <laughs> yeah. And Pat was just like, well, I can help. I'm like, yes, you can. <laughs> so, yeah. so he'll be talking a little bit. But Teresa, I think you should go first because yours yes. is probably the most iconic Ooh, um, yes. topic for today. So take it away. I would love to. Uh, let me preface this by saying that exorcism, the whole topic in general, is... Um, something that I haven't even really wanted to even explore, uh, maybe until this time in my life. I'll get more into that later. I was brought up Catholic, so <laughs> I feel that, that that has a lot to do with it, yes. Um, but I definitely learned so many interesting things uh, that I can't wait to share with you. So let me just get started. Um, so I am going to be talking about the exorcism of Roland Doe. Who is Roland Doe, you say? Well, you'll find out. <laughs> Sounds like a rapper name, but that's... <laughs> Roland Doe. Roland Doe. <laughs> He's Roland Write Doe. Down. Yeah. Um, <laughs> a rapper's name. Okay, I'm writing it down. I don't know if I was supposed to write it down, but I'm writing it down anyway. (laughs) Uh, So let's see. A little bit of background on the general aspects of the story. 
the time period where the all the main events take place uh, during the late 1940s here in the United States, uh, mostly on the East Coast and um, Midwest. Um, so during this period of time, Catholic priests performed a series of exorcisms on an anonymous boy who was given the name Roland Doe, or he's also sometimes known as Robbie Mannheim. Um, and he's actually known by a possible third name, which people think might be his actual identity, but we'll get into that later. So at the time the events were taking place, Roland Doe, I'm just going to call, refer to him as Roland Doe throughout the whole thing, mostly. Um, he was 14 years old. But then there's other accounts. That's that's the thing with this story. Even in when I'm speaking about it generally, um, there's so many different accounts of what actually happened that sometimes the details get confusing. Um, but he, one account said that he was 14 years old. Another one said that he was 13. Another one said that he was 12. But that's all in pretty much in the same general age range. So we could just say he's a teenage boy. He was a teenage boy at the time. Um, so yes, he was uh, the subject of a demonic possession. And um, the parts of the events probably the mo the more um uh well the what am i trying to say more more of the events that were the most sensational were a heavy inspiration for as tio was saying um a famous film but before that it was a novel so it was written in 1971 by William Peter Blatty a novel called The Exorcist and then turned into the 1973 film of the same name, The Exorcist, but that one was um, by William Friedkin, but William Peter Blatty wrote the script for the movie uh, as well. So that's kind of the whole, um, that's the biggest part of the inspiration um, behind, behind that. So let's see. Sorry, just looking over my notes here. <clears throat> I love that movie, by the way. You do? Oh okay. It's well, very make... scary, but I don't know. I just like movies that are feel very 70s, and I don't know. I love that movie yeah. a lot. It is very scary. It's really fucked up. I've probably seen it maybe only a handful of times, but yeah. <laughs> Wasn't it the first horror movie nominated for an Academy Award? I mean that's that sounds right. Um, yeah, I think I think so. That sounds right. I'm well, not... ra rarely do horror movies win Academy Awards. Yeah, uh, you know, which you know that's a, a debate in itself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but... I'm uh, I'm glad you brought that up. Actually, watching the film before I get into everything else because th now I can make my confession, which I have still not seen the film from start to finish. I've seen clips of it. Yeah. And I've seen, um, <laughs> I was telling Josh, I saw um, 
most of it, Tia, at your birthday party a couple of years ago. Oh. When you guys had it on in the background, I told Josh, I'm like, is this the exorcist? He's like, yeah, I was like, and then I started like my eyes were like glued to the screen because I was trying to take it in. But um, <laughs> I have I have been too scared up until that point to want to watch it. And it's, once again, I think it's because of the Catholic upbringing. <laughs> Yeah, and I heard it was just terrifying, by the way. So that also made me not want to see it either. <laughs> but yeah, that was the most I had seen at your house. And it was um, towards the end of the film. So I know to get the full effect, I'll need to go back and watch the whole thing. But to be honest, I, I don't know if I'm ready for that any day soon. So <laughs> that was pretty I mean, scary. I can yeah. rewatch that Rosemary's Baby. However, I watched it one time, and I probably will never watch that movie ever again. Oh, really? Okay. It's I've not seen that, like a piece of that too, but not yeah. a lot. It's not it's like not the, fear. the fear; it's more the anxiety of it all. Like, uh, and I think when things are like fantasized a yeah. lot, fantasy scary is not as scary as reality scary, which is probably why the exorcism is so scary because, or the exorcist is so yeah. scary, probably because like, there's a lot of realistic things that happen in it. Right. You know? Right. Uh, yes. And, and a lot of things too, that like when I was growing up with, they didn't, I mean, honestly, it wasn't focused on so much like those aspects, like, okay, you need to always be thinking about the fact that you could get possessed by a demonic spirit or something like that. But it's just because it's so heavy within the Catholic Church, you know, uh, I think I just stayed away from even investigating it or something like that. But but no, now I am very interested and I will I won't stop being interested. So yeah, I guess I'll have to go back and rewatch the movie and well now I know the backstory it makes it a little bit easier maybe for me to mm. <laughs> for me to digest okay yeah yeah I heard the book is very scary as well um but no I haven't read the book either <laughs> but yeah let me bring it back to our original inspiration for this classic iconic horror film The Exorcist Roland Doe um so I did mention that um, there was a third possible name that Roland went by. And according to, this is uh, in December 2021, um, so very recently, there's a magazine called The Skeptical Inquirer. And then The Guardian, which might be a little bit more familiar to people, but The Skeptical Inquirer and The Guardian reported that the supposed true identity, true identity of Roland Doe slash Robbie Mannheim um, is, was a man named Ronald Edwin Hunkler. And he was around from 1935 and he just passed recently too, within the past two years. Um, he lived until uh, May 10th, 2020. Um, so I'll get a little more into to Ronald um, later, um, but 
that could be a possible identity, but it's not really been ever verified and probably won't ever be verified. Um, Yeah, just one of those things. (laughs) But a lot of that, as you can imagine, with with this story. So um, as I said, the the origin of all of this happening uh, started in the late 40s, actually in mid-1949. That's when local newspapers uh, began printing and circulating anonymous reports of alleged possession and exorcism. And they were talking, of course, about Roland Doe. And those reports were likely thought to have been made by the family's former pastor. And it, they were a, um, a German American family. So they were also religious and they were Lutherans. So their Lutheran pastor was Luther Miles Schultz or Schultz. Um, and he's the one that made the reports first. It's, it's thought. Um, so Roland and his family uh, lived in Cottage City, Maryland. And Roland was an only child. So um, it was said that because he didn't have very many well, he didn't have any other siblings in the house to play with um, and maybe not too many friends, it seems. Um, he was very close to his aunt who lived with him, his Aunt Harriet. Uh, but Aunt Harriet, in some accounts, also goes by the name of Aunt Tilly. So yeah. it's not very clear whether what her name was, but I, I saw Harriet the most often. Um, so we'll go with Harriet, but he was very close to her and, um, his aunt was a spiritualist. So being a spiritualist, she introduced Roland to all kinds of different things that he was definitely not used to and things that he became very interested in, in his own way. She introduced him to the Ouija board for one. So that was a pretty big moment for him um, because, like I said, he was very close with his aunt. And after Aunt Harriet died, she died um, in her 50s. So she wasn't, she wasn't, uh, it was kind of a sudden death. And after she died, um, the family started experiencing very strange things in their houses, in their house. Uh, Everything from strange noises to the furniture moving on its own, um, and then uh, ordinary objects around the house, like a vase, would fly or levitate when it was near Roland, supposedly. This is what they say. Um, And they were thinking uh, that maybe Roland had used the Ouija board to contact, try to contact Aunt Harriet, And instead, he might have picked up some kind of demonic entity or spirit instead, um, which might have clung to him in that way. Um, But that part is, you know, like most of it is kind of hearsay or speculation. So it's not really clear exactly why the, uh, the trouble started, but it started after she died. So, um... Well, let's see. Like I said, their their Lutheran pastor, um, Luther Miles Schultz, advised the family 
to see a Catholic priest. Now, you can imagine at that time, especially, I mean, me growing up in a, you know, religious household, I don't think, you know, there would have been anybody advising, you know, usually don't advise out of your, outside of your denomination, but um, (laughs) because they didn't know what to do and then their, their pastor didn't know what to do. He said, well, I'm not really equipped for this. Let's, you need a Catholic. So <laughs> let's call in the Catholic mm-hmm. priest to try and investigate this. Um, so they did get a priest involved, and that was Father E. Albert Hughes. And uh, he came over to the house, and he kind of did a preliminary investigation. Um, and essentially, things just went so badly on that first visit, um, he said that he, you know, saw all these things happening, the same things that were um, the family reported were happening. And of course, Roland himself was acting very erratically. um, And, you know, all the kind of things that you hear about, um, if you've seen The Exorcist, you know, the, the changing voice, the growling, the snarling, the fighting, spitting, you know, um, clawing, all of that stuff. Um, so after after the father Hughes witnessed this, um, he got permission then to perform an exorcism, uh, try to perform an exorcism on Roland. Um, and they took him to um, Georgetown University Hospital. And that was a Jesuit-owned um, hospital. So during this exorcism, Roland supposedly broke free one of his hands from the restraints. He took a bedspring from underneath the mattress Jeez. and he slashed, he slashed the priest's arm. <laughs> so after that, the exorcism was halted because, of course, you know, can't go on after after someone's been seriously injured. He did, you know, have to receive medical care, according to his report. Um, But what would happen from this point on is that I said, you know, there was a series of exorcisms that happened, multiple ones. Well, according to this report, there were more than 20 exorcism rituals that were performed on Roland in the span of about three months. So that's a lot of time that they spent, um, you know, trying to rid him of this evil entity that they believed was inside him. Um, so after, um, you know, the first exorcism was halted, they were able to, um, the family was, they, they kind of put it together that maybe they were receiving a message because, um, on Roland's body, there were, you know, marks, scratches, but then one, uh, and this was, you know, one in a series of words that over the course of the exorcisms, certain words they said would appear in his skin. And one of the words that appeared in his skin was Lewis, L-O-U-I-S. And it was scratched, you know, written in, if you will, uh, and deep red scratches on his chest or his ribs. So 
like I said, there's different accounts, but it was scratched into his skin. And so the family took the word Lewis to mean that they needed to move to St. Louis, Missouri. So they actually had family there, um, which was, you know, kind of a more convincing reason. They thought, okay, well, um, they felt like they were getting the message that they were supposed to go there and maybe then that would release the demon then. So the family did pack up everything and they moved to St. Louis and they lived there for a period of time. And while they were living in St. Louis, um, they of course got in touch with the local clergy there and priests came over to the house again, inspected, investigated, um, and, you know, were subject to all of the same things that the first priest was back on the East coast. Um, but they performed another uh, series of the big exorcisms, I'll call them, at um, the Alexian Brothers Hospital. And this was in South St. Louis, Missouri. Um, now it is called South City Hospital today. Um, but they went there in an attempt to continue the exorcism rituals and continue to try to help um, Roland rid him of this demon. So there were three priests at the Alexian Brothers Hospital that were involved in uh, the exorcism rituals. And um, the two first priests were probably the most close with the case. And that was William S. Bowdern and Walter Haloran. There was another priest, William Van Roo, who they also uh, called in for assistance, but uh, sorry, Bow <laughs> like tripping over his name, Bowdern and Haloran were the two priests that um, that were the main ones. And the, they would kind of become, um, Bowdern would become the model or the idea, inspiration behind um, the, the priest, I forget what his name is, in The Exorcist, the one who's the older one, Max von Sydow. So Father... I think it starts with an M. Mirin, maybe? Oh, I don't I'm going to mess it up. it up. Yeah. Marin? Yeah. Marin? Father Marin. Yeah, thank you. Father Marin. Thank you. Yeah, that's it. So uh, William S. Bowdern, Bowdern uh, is the model for that priest. Um, so when they were at the... Alexian Brothers Hospital, and they were performing those exorcisms, uh, Father Haloran stated that words like evil and hell, along with the other marks and scratches, appeared all over Roland's body. Um, in fact, Bowdern even said that he saw a giant X scratched into Roland's chest. And he would... So he, he also kept a diary, I should mention. He kept a, an ongoing diary of, you know, all of the things that happened every time they performed an exorcism ritual. And I listened to a little, it wasn't really a podcast, but it was like a radio show interview that I'll share with you at the end of, you know, when I finish talking about this. But um, they, they described it pretty well. Um, when they were talking about it, like it was um, kind of 
the diary was meant to be, you know, kind of a manual to, okay, this is what we went through and maybe this is how, how to combat this or whatnot, because, you know, they didn't really have any guide to what they were trying to do. And so they were trying to create a guide for themselves, essentially, is why they kept the diary as well. And the diary is what um, supposedly William Peter Blatty got his hands on and then, you know, used that as the basis for for his novel. So anyway, um, so yeah, back at um, the hospital, when he saw the X scratched into the chest, they were thinking that that meant the number 10. And then they further thought after, you know, other days and nights went by, they claimed they saw things besides the X. They claimed they saw things like um, like pitchforks running up and down his legs, like red pitchforks. Um and what else did they say? They said um, they said that the X uh, probably meant that Roland was being possessed by 10 demons. That's what they finally determined. And that's why the X was there. So will we ever know the answer to that? No, but <laughs> that's what they thought. Um, so more all the um, the worst stuff that, you know, you could probably think would happen during an exorcism was what was happening during the series of exorcisms at this hospital. Uh, during the Litany of Saints portion of the exorcism, Roland's mattress began to shake. And Father Haloran even claims that Roland broke his nose during the process. Um, it was just kind of the kind of stuff that, you know, they tried, they did portray, they wound up portraying in the film, The Exorcist, but in reality, or I guess I shouldn't say reality, in, in the, in Roland's version of the story, these kinds of things did happen. But unlike in the movie, there was no 360 degree head turn, <laughs> like the character in there. Mm -hmm. There was no... Um, none of the pea soup vomit. It said that he did vomit, but it wasn't, you know, green, uh, gross, all that, like how it looked mm -hmm. in the movie. And of course, there was maybe not, of course, but there was no masturbation with a bloody crucifix. <laughs> so uh, those things did not happen, uh, or at least that they wrote down during Roland's account of, um, of being exercised. Not his account, but what they wrote about him. So um, that and actually during that time, after all of these, you know, attempts to exercise him, they were successful, question mark. I say question mark because I don't think it's really it's really been determined. But after they um went through these series of exorcisms at the Alexian Brothers Hospital, Father Haloran told a reporter after the rite was over that Roland Doe went on to lead, quote, a rather ordinary life. So they determined that at that point um, he had been exorcised. He wasn't, 
you know, in a trance-like state anymore. He wasn't doing the guttural voice sounds and nothing else weird was happening. So they figured, okay, I guess he's all right. Um, but was he? I don't know. Um, going back to Ronald Edwin Hunkler, the man who supposedly might have been the real Roland Doe, um, he did go on, yeah, to lead a ordinary life. Um, but if it was him, he was a NASA engineer and he actually was, uh, a lot of his work contributed to uh, what happened during the Apollo space missions. And um, yeah, so, I mean, it's kind of crazy. He, his life, you know, when he died, he was living in Marriott'sville, Maryland. So it was on the East Coast. And, you know, the original Rolando was supposedly from Maryland. So that that's a possible connection. Um, so he died from a stroke um, one, one month before his 86th birthday. So if that was indeed him, then yes, he went on to lead, you know, as the father would say, uh, kind of a more or less ordinary life. And um, with the exception of being a NASA engineer, of course. And, um, you know, his, <laughs> his companion, that's who was quoted as uh, the source of, you know, this new information um, was saying that, you know, he was always living in fear of the fact that he, his identity might be revealed at any time as the original Roland Doe. And she said that he went so far as like every Halloween, he'd kind of like stay out of sight because he just didn't even mm-hmm. want to be associated with anything. So it is possible that it could have been Ronald Edwin Hunkler. Um, but to my mo- to my knowledge, no one has ever interviewed this man in any real way. Um, and of course, he's not with us anymore. He passed a couple years ago. So uh, unless we use the Ouija board and he's on there, we might, we're not yeah. able to answer these questions. But um, so I just thought it was really interesting how, you know, we're not sure. It could be him, but maybe not. So um, now moving on to a little more of the skeptical side of things. Um, Of course, you have to imagine that when talking about exorcisms, I'm sure you found this in your research too, guys, that, yeah, there's going to be a lot of heavy skepticism. People do not know if the person themselves is, you know, behaving a certain way, or if they actually are possessed by somebody else, some somebody or something else. So um, let's see, in Possessed, uh, which is a book, Possessed, The True Story of an Exorcism by Thomas B. Allen. This is a book uh, written in 1993. He said that the, quote, consensus of today's experts uh, say that, quote, Robbie, he calls him Robbie, Robbie was just a deeply disturbed boy, nothing supernatural about him. So, and that came at the end of him 
you know, doing a lot of research on the topic and coming up with his conclusion. And that was his conclusion. And there's another author. um, I think I'm going to mess up his name. Sorry in advance. But Mark Opsasnik, I think that's the right way to say it. Mark Opsasnik questioned many of the supernatural claims. He, uh, and these are some of them, he thinks that Roland was just maybe a bad kid who wanted attention. He says that uh, Father Haloran never actually heard Roland's voice change. He said that Roland didn't speak Latin, uh, but he just mimicked Latin words that maybe he heard from church, like when he's speaking, you know, in Latin and saying, you know, whatever phrases he's saying that he didn't actually he was not possessed and had someone speaking through him that he just, you know, was mimicking the words. Uh, he said that Father Haloran didn't check Roland's fingernails to see if he actually made the marks himself. Um, he doesn't think that Roland actually broke Father Haloran's nose because he said there's no evidence that this occurred that he could find. Um, and that he also said the first exorcism attempt didn't take place at uh, 3210 Bunker Hill Road in Mount Rainier, Maryland, which that was another thing. So most of the accounts now say that Roland's family was from Cottage City, Maryland, but he sometimes um, it's sometimes said that he grew up in Mount Rainier, Maryland. But uh, this author is saying that that didn't happen. He never lived there, and the family's home was in Cottage City, Maryland. Um, so the the big thing that he wanted people to take away was that much of the commonly accepted information about Roland's story is based on hearsay, so not documented or fact-checked. Uh, I mean, I have my own ideas about that, but <laughs> I'm not quite as skeptical as he is. So, um, mm. but he said that there was no evidence at all of the first priest who was Father Hughes, that he ever made a home visit, that he ever um, said that Roland should be admitted to the Georgetown Hospital, or even that the, there was any exorcism attempted at all. Um, and then this quote from him was, you know, going even further on that, what he felt, he said, to psychiatrists, Rob Doe suffered from mental illness. To priests, this was a case of demonic possession. To writers and film video producers, this was a great story to exploit for profit. Those involved saw what they were trained to see. Each purported to look at the facts, but just the opposite was true. In actuality, they manipulated the facts and emphasized information that fit their own agendas. And he wrote that after he spoke with um, some former neighbors and childhood friends of Roland Doe. And he, his conclusion was that, quote, the boy had been a very clever trickster who had pulled pranks to frighten his mother and to fool children in the neighborhood. So he definitely was not convinced at all. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and he was uh, an author that wrote an article called The Cold Hard Facts Behind the Story That Inspired the Exorcist. And that was taken from uh, Strange Magazine in November of 2015. So there is um, one more take, one more kind of general take on the the whole exorcism thing, if you will. Um, And that would be, of course, the religious take. So uh, there are two people um, that are both professors and authors, and they're known as um, Christian academics. And uh, one would be Terry D. Cooper. He's a professor of psychology. And Cindy K. Epperson, she's a professor of sociology. And they actually wrote a book uh, called um, Evil, Satan, Sin, and Psychology. <laughs> um, sorry, I just think that <laughs> sounds kind of funny. <laughs> but um, they, they wrote that advocates of possession believe that, quote, although they are not frequent exorcisms, oh no, sorry, although there are not frequent exorcisms, oh no, wait, oh my God, I can't read my own writing. (laughs) (laughs) Although they are not frequent exorcisms, I must have written this fast, they are necessary for casting out the demonic and cases of genuine possession cannot be explained by psychiatry. They actually devoted a whole chapter of uh, of their book, Evil, Satan, Sin, and Psychology, to uh, the Roland Doe case. Um, and they dismissed, of course, any natural explanations of what might have happened in favor of um, this supernatural perspective regarding the nature of evil. So they definitely believe that, you know, this was a supernatural thing and that this is possible, was possible, and actually did happen. Um, So interesting because um, it's a religious take, but it sounds like it should be the opposite almost to me. But no, it's not. (laughs) It's There's other people who are skeptics and they're not... um, apparently based in religion. So I just thought that was interesting. But um, of course, the books and the film films uh, that were inspired are also really um, important to look at. Of course, there was The Exorcist, which we've been talking about this whole time. And beyond that, there was a 2000 film called Possessed, and that came from Thomas B. Allen's book of the same name that I mentioned before, Possessed, uh, the story of Roland Doe. And that one follows the story that I've just been telling you a little more closely than the Exorcist version. Um, I haven't seen that one either, but um, if anyone out there has, let us know if it's worth seeing. <laughs> um, there's a documentary about Roland called In the Grip of Evil. There's also another documentary that is more recent from 2010 called The Haunted Boy, The Secret Diary of the Exorcist. And in that one, it 
the investigators uncover the diary that is said to be kept by uh, the priest from St. Louis, William S. Bowdern. And then uh, even more recently than that, there's an episode uh, from 2021, uh, the Travel Channel or Discovery Plus, and it's on the show Shock Docs. And it's just about the exorcism of Roland Doe is the title. And I think you can stream that on Hulu if you're interested, I think. Um, so, yeah, that, that's the most recent one. So did all of this happen? Hmm. I really do believe it did. And I'm. it's not only because I'm prone to, to believe these things more easily, but uh, after I read certain details, it just gave me the chills. I was like, wow, if that's really true, then... I'm, yeah, I believe this happened. So one of the things that kind of chilled me was that after the St. Louis exorcism, the room that they had used in the Alexian Brothers Hospital, they completely boarded it up and sealed it up. Okay. I mean, if nothing happened in there, (coughs) why are you doing that? And then the entire facility, that whole wing, which was like a psychiatric wing, was torn down completely in 1978. The house where the family lived in Maryland, it's now an empty lot. And that was after first being abandoned back in the 1960s. Um, and then, you know, there's the question, It, like I said before, is Roland Doe actually, was actually Ronald uh, Hunkler? That's a lot of big question marks around there. Um, so all of these things are, you know, things, I mean, the, fir- the first two fa- uh, factoids I was mentioning, those just kind of sealed the deal for me. Like anytime I'm pretty, I don't know, I, I, I tune in to like abandoned places and stuff like that. So anytime something like that is happening, it just makes me feel like something bad went down. So, you know, I mean... I'm not sure of all the details of everything that happened, but yeah, it's if that's true, I don't know. It doesn't sound good to me. <laughs> so, and then um, the last thing I'll leave you with is that um, is that mention of the the radio interview that I was talking about, and this was from ninety eight point one WOGL out of um, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Philly. Um, and it was how the exorcism of Roland Doe turned into the exorcist with very little change. And that was an interview done by Nate Weaver and Glenn Kalina. And they interviewed Troy Taylor, who my ears perked up right away because I know Troy Taylor from, and you guys probably do too, from he's written tons of books on hauntings and like he's, he uh, wrote the book behind me that I always reference weird Illinois and just, you know, a bunch of stuff. So, um, and he has done a lot of research on this topic. So if you want to hear, you know, a little snippet of an interview, uh, I think it was like, I don't know, 13 minutes long. It wasn't very long, but, um, he's very knowledgeable on the subject Troy Taylor is. So I recommend checking that out. Um, and then I just thought that the they they asked 
Troy Taylor in the interview, um, what was the most um, disturbing part of the case to you of Roland Doe or what what kind of stays with you, you know, to convince you that this this might have actually happened? Um, you know, and I think he he more or less said that he he did believe it happened. But he said that the part that convinced him the most was um, when the priest mentioned uh, and this was like, you can see this too on the, um, uh, what's it called, on the shock docs, on the Travel Channel episode. Um, they, there's like a lost interview um, from a monk who was su- supposedly also in the room at the time. Um, and he came forward, you know, to reveal this information. So he said that Roland um, and then the boy levitated 12 inches off the bed. So he said once he heard about him levitating 12 inches off mm-hmm. the bed, he said, yeah, that pretty much convinced me. And I, you know, I've been I haven't been able to stop thinking about it since. So he said while he continues to do his other work, his other research, that he's still also researching the story still to this day. So, um, yeah, <laughs> that's what I found. And I took uh most of my information from uh, an article called Inside the Harrowing Exorcism of Roland Doe, The True Story Behind the Exorcist. And that was by William Long and also Wikipedia and um, and also uh, the article from Strange Magazine. So, yeah, that's uh, that's Roland Doe. <laughs> Right. That was a lot. Sorry. <laughs> I feel no, like, oh, was- yeah, no, that was. That's really freaky. <laughs> right. All this stuff is really cool because I remember we did the episode. I don't know if you guys remember um, that we did the, on the behind the scenes. Like the. Oh, yeah. We did the, the episode of what happened on the set of The Exorcism. Oh, previously? Filming. Yeah. On Hollywood's Haunted? Okay. Yeah. Which is really cool because, like, now listening to what actually happened, you know, and then thinking about the stuff that happened to them on set was pretty, it's pretty crazy. Yeah. yeah. It's pretty wild. I mean, what what does it sound like to you guys? Are you more inclined to believe that it happened? I don't know. Um, because of what we're going to get into with my story. Okay. Uh, I would say I am leaning towards the skeptical. Okay. Um, But that's just with the information that I have from my story. Because what I'm going to get into is a crazy little shit show. Um, (laughs) (laughs) All right, then. Yeah. The power of wine compels us. The power of wine. <laughs> hey, I'm clinking too. I've got wine too. Vino Veritas. Yeah, it definitely right. does. So we've all taken our communion. So <laughs> and we're back from our break. Um, so Pat and I, because apparently I could not finish my research, not due to supernatural supernatural elements, but due to utter exhaustion of working a lot this weekend uh i pat and i decided to split this more pat offered to split it and i just was like yes please thank you <laughs> um 
But we are going to talk about the basis of the latest Conjuring film, The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It. The story behind The Devil's Rocking Chair, which is a piece featured at the Zach Biggins, the Haunted Museum in Las Vegas, which I may or may not be familiar with. I've heard of it. And the trial of Arnie Cheyenne Johnson and the exorcism of David Bladsell. I meant to Whoa. ask you, since you, already, since you did so That's much so research, much. and we've talked about him before, is it Arnie? Because I've heard, uh, heard people say it differently. We'll get into okay. that. <laughs> All right, I'm jumping, we'll get into I'm that. Okay. Too quick into it. It's so, so I want to preface this with: this is a case that Ed and Lorraine Warren were involved in, and Pat's going to talk a little bit about who they are. But if you've been listening to our show, we did an episode a year ago on Annabelle, uh, Annabelle the doll, which. The is in the Conjuring film universe. She was a real doll. She was uh, also involved in a case that Ed and Lorraine Warren were a part of. She is now at the uh, the Warren Museum, which is in Monroe, Connecticut, now being run by the son-in-law of the Warrens, who may or may not have uh, decided to marry into the family just to exploit their fame. But... karma is a bitch and um i will get into all of that so um so pat's gonna go a little bit over who the ed and lorraine warren are even though we have talked about them just ever so slightly in the past um and if you want to hear about annabelle check out that episode or watch the movie, I guess. Uh, that is very loosely two, based off of... Although I did really like the Annabelle movie. I liked how they kind of had like a Charles Manson cult feel, feel of the true. whole... You know, even though like the true story of Annabelle was more of what they did in the first five minutes of the movie with the roommates and that, and then everything else was just made up. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I wish it would have been... However, the latest Conjuring film, The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, was uh, very much, very much inspired by this story. I felt like they did a decently accurate portrayal of it, although a lot of it was sensationalized. But sensationalized, sensationalism, sensational, that is the word for this that is the word for anything that Ed and Lorraine were in touch that they are a part of. Uh, I'm going to try not to be so angry and biased, but. Uh, I can know. hear it already, but it's okay. It's all right. The biased steam. You must That's have not, a reason, so I'm interested to know. So That is not a ghost in the uh, room. That is me letting out some steam. <laughs> <laughs> You you get into what you need to say. Um, so you're talking about like the cases, right? Like you're, you're not. You're, you're I'm not talking talk specifically about, like, about the case of like, the exorcism of David Gladsell and Arnie Johnson's trial. Okay, cool. that's all I'm talking about. Awesome, awesome. I just didn't want to like overlap on. I mean, you can. 
no, just, no, no. I, I, I'll just, I, that's I less for me to talk about. That's, so that's hilarious. Um, so, um, yeah, I did a lot of research, but I guess, I guess really, honestly, everybody knows Ed and Lorraine Warren because they are the most famous, uh, paranormal investigators ever, you know, like think of mm. who, who else would you say is the most famous? Zach Bagans. Besides Zach Bagans now. Uh, <laughs> paranormal investigator. Well, what is his name? Jonathan Price? Exactly. What is his name? Ed, everybody knows Ed and Lorraine. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, yeah. Like, they were like kind of the first two, I guess. I'll to... think of one. Yeah. yeah <laughs> I, know a, I know a fictional one. Mulder and Scully, x Files. Oh, oh, yeah. Nice, nice, yeah. nice. Those are paranormal investigators, that's true. And I love them. I know, right? Yeah. Uh, They're so great. Shout out to David Duchovny and... Oh. Oh, yeah. God. His new movie. And also, I have to... Wait, I do have to throw this one out. Oh, wait, what? Sorry. I was trying to think of uh, Dana Scully's... Uh, Gina Anderson? Jillian. Jillian. Jillian Anderson. Jillian yeah. Anderson. And I have to say, another um, duo... Because uh, one of my goddaughter's favorites, and it's her birthday today. Happy birthday, Anna! Um, it's Supernatural, Sam and Dean. Um, uh, okay, all right. I all mean, right. maybe you haven't seen it, but I saw the whole thing, and yeah. No, I, I haven't. Anyway, that's more for the shout out to Sam. Uh, yeah, Sam and Dean, <laughs> especially Dean. That's just. <laughs> Um, But yes, a famous couple spent their lives investigating uh, possessions, hauntings, uh, all manner of supernatural events. Uh, They apparently they said they investigated over ten thousand such events. Sorry, his name's Harry Price, not Jonathan Price. From what? Sorry, he's a paranormal investigator. Oh Oh, yeah, okay. He was the first ever popular paranormal investigator. I learned about him by reading Ghost Hunting for Dummies, written by Zach Bagans. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. Which is a great book, which is a great a book. book. Yeah, and I did a whole a podcast book. on him, so I should know who he was. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, no, start no. over. We'll, Go ahead. We'll, we'll insert that in later. Yeah. Yeah, post. Harry Price. Harry there Price. we go. Um, so before they were uh, investigators, um, they were just... A couple. In 1944, Ed worked as an usher at the Colonial Theater in Bridgeport, Connecticut, a place the rain frequented. Uh, they became friends and started dating. On Ed's 17th birthday, he enlisted in the Navy. After he left, um, it was only four months uh, before his ship was sunk in the North Atlantic. Uh, he returned for a 30-day leave. During this time, uh, that's when Ed and Lorraine got married. Uh, 1952, uh, they both founded the New England Society for Psychic Research together, um, which um, was also their uh, museum. So this is what became their home and home base for the research community and the museum, which is, I think that, yeah, that's what the museum is today or was. Uh, in the basement, they started what became the Warren Occult Museum, uh, which did close in 2018. Um, so it is actually still closed. Um, they, the son is not actually running it. The son-in-law? Or the son-in-law is not is no longer running it. Mm. Um, and it's actually because, I believe, I think it's on uh, 
it's a actually a residential property. Like I said, it's their home. You know, the museum is in the basement. So legally they can't sell tickets for people to come in there, I guess, unless it's like, you know, designated a historical landmark or something, you know, like other uh-huh. museums do. Um, because it's just a basement, really. Um, this museum is filled with demonic items, satanic artifacts, um, all the all different haunted items they collected over their investigation time, which is the one, the probably the biggest draw, obviously, is the one that Tia talked about, which is the Annabelle doll, which was like a Raggedy Ann doll. Uh, yeah. How are they going to make her look like ugly and stuff? Like, she looked cute like Raggedy Ann. I thought they should have kept her like that. Oh, yeah. I think it's, it's creepier, too. too. It's way it creepier. Has, right, yeah, when it has, like, less of a face. You know? Yeah. Like, it has, like, less expression. You know, like, when it's just there. Like, I don't know. Yeah. I'm sorry. Just a thought. Anyway, no, no, carry on. Totally, yeah. I totally agree, yeah. <laughs> it would because... be creepy as fuck. I love Raggedy Ann. And so I think just for me, turning things that you love into something that's like terrifying that's just the worst to me you know like that's how i felt that's how i felt me and many others about clowns with itch but i'm over that now thank Um, god but you know for a long time it's like oh clowns i love clowns they're happy they make me laugh and then it was like no i fucking hate clowns because they're terrifying (laughs) so (laughs) Anyway, I think it would be much more effective if they just kept Raggedy Ann, but maybe they couldn't do that for copyright reasons, obviously, and stuff yeah, like that. that's probably more accurate. That's true, actually. And yeah, artistic, sure artistic choices, you know, they want to make it look more sinister looking or whatnot. Yeah. I don't know, but that definitely is nothing like the original. So anyway, sorry. I think, I think like making the eyes move and stuff like that. Yeah, they obviously wanted to make it like a more intricate thing, you know. Yeah, yeah. Like, I think I think it lost a lot of uh, creepiness in that. But yeah, that's I guess beyond. Yeah. Um, so on the current uh, New England Society for Psychic Research site. The new owner explained, they were not occultists. They were not strange. If you had the privilege of speaking to them, they would seem like normal folks with regular jobs. They were ordinary people who happened to do extraordinary work work in a field that most people fear or don't believe. Um, so apparently they just seem like normal people to most, most everybody. Uh, but uh, both Ed and Lorraine Warren said events in their childhood is what prepared them for their time as... Uh, psychic or paranormal investigators ed was born on september 7th 1926 uh, sorry 1926 on bridgeport connecticut he grew up in a house he believed he was haunted he described himself as a self-taught demonologist which i think is uh. hilarious uh. um because honestly like i that's it's weird when when you give your when you give yourself a title because like yeah demonologist like that's not that's um i hate to bring down like the you know um, um what's the ancient alien one ancient astronaut theorists oh you know, like, yeah you, you've, been, you've given it a fancy title but this is not something yeah. that they've there's no a requirement to re- to receive that title right, you know? right to be fair though who's gonna teach demonology in his time that's a good point yeah, now good point. nowadays we have classes we have the haunted diary school we have this the school of the esoteric we have 
stuff like that, where you can actually be taught by people who've studied more and more, you know, but self-taught also just means reading a lot of books. So, you know, to be fair. No, that's true. That's, that's, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. Not saying that Ed Warren didn't appoint titles to himself. Yeah. Yeah. Which (laughs) we're going to get into first. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so after his time in the Navy in World, uh, yeah, World War II, um, he began uh, uh, painting. He used to be a, a painter before, um, so he enrolled in Yale as a subsidiary school, the Perry Art School. And there may um, or may not be two paintings by Ed Warren at the Zach Bagans, the Haunted Museum, yeah. which I may or may not be familiar with. We were. Really- <laughs> yeah, we were really. Tour guides are great. The tour guides are great. Um, <laughs> apparently, his favorite subject was painting haunted houses. Uh, two years later, he withdrew from the school. Uh, Ed and Lorraine Warren started setting up um, uh, roadside uh, stands in tourist areas like uh, Massachusetts, Vermont, Rhode Island, uh, and Connecticut to sell his paintings. Um which I'm sure they talked about how they were haunted while they were selling them and everything, you know, and pushing their, their shtick, you know, to sell the painting. Um, <laughs> maybe that's biased. That might take it out. Uh, after a while, uh, <laughs> they, uh, used, uh, his skills as a painter to pursue, uh, sorry, to pursue their, uh, uh, supernatural addiction, I guess. When they found a site they considered haunted, Ed would stand outside to sketch the house. Once finished, he would approach the homeowners and offer them the sketch in exchange for a tour of the home. Uh, According to his obituary, he was one of only seven religious demonologists in the U.S. When not pursuing the supernatural, he professed himself as a lover of animal advocacy and rescued many pets over the years. So, Okay. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. All right. When asked if he feared death, Ed said, no, I don't fear it. Not one iota. I know I'll be going to a beautiful place, a place so spectacular it defies words. Um, so getting to Lorraine Warren, she was born on January 20, uh, 31st, sorry, 1927. Lorraine Rita Morgan uh, grew up with her family in also Bridgeport, Connecticut. Um, she believed she was closely... Um, a tr- um, enveloped in the supernatural world at seven years old she began seeing auras around people uh which she apparently kept to herself because she was afraid you know like people think she was crazy um what do you what do you think about that what do i think about that yeah i think it's interesting because i believed i i saw auras at one time you know i i believe that i could see people's colors at, at one point in time I think that is definitely a real thing that people can see. And I think that has to do with a lot of things like stranger danger is a sense of someone's self, you know, and I think that knowing someone's intentions is a part of a psychic ability that some people have and some people don't. So mm-hmm. I think that is, I think that's a real thing. I, I just it, wanted I, to. No, I think, I think it's definitely possible, you know, and that's also like something I never really brought up for a long time until, you know, recently because I thought it would be weird to talk about, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but, 
Um, but yeah, I just wanted to say it, it's like kind of like a, this is what she believed, you know, and this is what others, I guess, you know, also believed, you know, okay. but I'm just making it as neutral as possible, I guess. Now okay. she confessed to her boyfriend, Ed Warren, at the time of her uh, supernatural powers and everyone else knows kind of what else happened after that. Um, she called herself a clairvoyant and light trance medium. And she used her gifts in the uh, work she did with Ed Warren selling the paintings. Uh, both Warrens practice Roman Catholicism, um, which is why they're demonologists, I guess, because the Catholics are the best at it, as Teresa was. Um, yeah. Um, and We're she, all and, over that demon shit. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so Miss Warren said that her religious conviction is what drove the investigations. They thought that the evils of the world were caused by a lack of religion. When there's low, in quotes, uh, when there's no religion, it is absolutely terrifying. That is your protection. God is your protection. It doesn't matter what your religion is. Huh. Yeah, interesting, right? Uh, during the investigation, Lorraine felt that the best place to feel the energies of the home, energies of the home, was in the bedrooms. When describing her process, she explained that it is the easiest way to sit on the edge of the bed. You know when you go to bed at night how all these things go through your mind? That's all recorded. You think these you think these things out, what you have experienced. You go to bed and it's played out for you again, the moment between working and sleep. So, so I'm going to get into my story here, which is what the latest Conjuring film was based on, which Ed and Lorraine Warren were involved in this case, but they're... They well, let uh, they kind of put themselves into the case, but uh, I'll just get into it. So, uh, this revolves a lot around the Gladsell family, and um, mostly Arnie Johnson, Debbie Gladsell, and David Gladsell. So, Arnie Johnson is. Debbie Gladsell's boyfriend. Debbie Gladsell is the older sister of David Gladsell, who is 11 year old, 11 years old when this is happening. So the three of them went to go clean up a rental property that uh, David Gladsell and Debbie were supposed to be cleaning. And at some point, David goes off on his own in this property and claims that an old man appeared and pushed him and terrified him and basically told him, if you move into this property, which David, and, or sorry, um, Arnie, and uh, basically the old man said, if you move into this property, the Gladsell family was looking to move into the property, and Debbie was living with her family still at this time, uh, that, you know, something bad will happen to the family. And David was very shaken up by this situation. So David went and told his family about it as they're cleaning up this property. And the family believed that David was using it as an excuse not to clean up and to kind of avoid doing work there. So... The family eventually moves in, but David continu continues to have these visions of this old man. Uh, 
included the man appearing as a demonic beast who muttered Latin and threatened to steal his soul. Which may or may not have been a child trying to convince them that this person existed. An imaginary friend that just so happens to help him get out of doing manual labor. You know. (laughs) Uh, Although the family allegedly heard strange noises coming from the attic, no one but David ever witnessed this old man. After David experienced night terrors and exhibited strange behavior and obtained unexplained scratches and bruises, the family called upon the services of a Catholic priest who attempted to bless the house. So the terrified family concluded that the house was evil and no longer continued to rent it. However, David's visions worsened, occurring in the daytime as well. So 12 days after the original incident, the family summoned a self-proclaimed demonologist, Ed, uh, self-proclaimed demonologist Ed and Lorraine Warren to assist. Did they did they contact Ed and Lorraine Warren, or did Ed and Lorraine Warren just show up at this family's door? Is to be debated, because according to David and one of his brothers, Ed and Lorraine Warren just showed up out of nowhere. According to Arnie and Debbie. The family, who are the older ones in the story, mind you, Arnie and Debbie would be older and would probably know more what was going on. The family contacted Ed and Lorraine Warren. So, Lorraine allegedly witnessed a black mist materializing next to David. This is Lorraine's account, though an apparent indication of a malevolent presence. Debbie and her mother told the Warrens that they had seen David being beaten and choked by an invisible hand that red marks had appeared on his neck afterwards. David had, uh, David had started to growl, hiss, and speak in otherworldly voices, which sounds very similar to Roland Doe. And recite passages from the Bible or Paradise Lost, which he would not have known at this point, being 11 years old. Yeah, I wouldn't think so. Wow. Oh, uh, this is also in 1980 is the year that this is happening. So this is the early 80s. Uh, The Gladsells recounted how each night a family member would remain awake with David as he suffered through spasms and convulsions. After receiving a prognosis of multiple possessions from the Warrens, so the Warrens said he was possessed by many demons. This is what the Warrens said. Not a doctor, not a priest. This is what the Warrens said. Uh, David was subjected to three lesser exorcisms. Lorraine asserted that David levitated, ceased breathing for a time, and even demonstrated the supernatural ability of precognition. According to Lorraine Warren, he, he, what is it? He, not, what is precognition? Like, uh, he, what is the word? He basically predicted, that's the word. He predicted. So according to Lorraine Warren, he predicted that, um, what was going to happen to Arnie Johnson a little bit later 
what I'm going to get into. Uh, specifically in relation to, oh, nope, that's what I just said. Uh, so he, he predicted basically what was going to happen to Arnie Johnson later. So in October of 1980, the Warrens contacted Brookfield police to warn them that the situation was becoming dangerous. According to eyewitness testimony, Arnie Johnson coerced one of the demons uh, within David to possess him while participating in one of David's exorcisms. So this is the center of this whole thing, is that while they were trying to exorcise David, Arnie Johnson tried to summon the demon out of David and convince him to come into himself. That sounded dirty. Uh, <laughs> but you know what I mean? Yeah. Basically that he was to leave David's body and possess him instead. And David gets better. Everything's great. Uh, another account though says that a few days later after Johnson had egged the demon on, during the exorcism, he was attacked rather viciously by a demon, which allegedly took control of his car and forced him into a tree. But uh, Arnie was unharmed, and after this incident, Johnson returned to the rental property to examine an old well that supposedly housed the demon, which is featured in the Conjuring film. I think I remember that being a part in it. <coughs> Johnson said that this was his final encounter with the demon while being completely lucid. And after encountering the demon at the well and making eye contact with it, he became possessed. <clears throat> so now we'll get into who, who is Alan Bono, who plays, uh, plays a little part in this, I would say. So Johnson had been living at his mother's home and like anyone who is dating in their youth he decided he wanted to move in with his girlfriend debbie debbie had recently been hired by a man named all alan alan bono uh he was a resident in brookfield and a dog groomer and he hired debbie to be a dog groomer and to live over the dog kennel where he would groom the dogs and house them and so Debbie and Arnie actually moved in. They began renting an apartment uh, right above the kennel. After moving in, Johnson, Arnie Johnson, started to exhibit odd behavior that was strikingly sim similar to David's, causing Debbie to fear that he had become possessed as well. According to Debbie, Johnson would fall into a trance-like state wherein he would growl and hallucinate, but later have no memory of it. Now, this comes to the incident. On February 16th, 1981, uh, Arnie Johnson called in sick to his job at Right Tree Service and joined Debbie at the kennel where she worked, along with, her, with his sister, Wanda, and Debbie's nine-year-old cousin, uh, Cousin Mary. Bono, so this is one account of this incident. There are two accounts of what went on. So this is one. Bono and the couple's landlord and Debbie's employer at the kennel brought the group lunch at uh, brought the group lunch at a local bar and proceeded to drink heavily. After lunch, the group returned to the kennel. 
Debbie then took the girls to get pizza, but insisted that they return quickly, anticipating trouble. When they returned, Bono, Alan Bono, who was intoxicated at this point, became agitated. Everyone left the room at Debbie's urging, except Bono, who seized Mary and refused to let go. So he basically grabs Mary and refuses to let go of her. So Arnie Johnson headed back to the apartment and ordered Bono to release Mary. Wanda recounted the following events to the police. Mary ran for the car as Debbie attempted to mitigate the situation by standing between the men. Wanda tried in vain to pull Johnson away. Johnson, growling like an animal, then drew a five-inch pocket knife and stabbed Bono repeatedly. Bono was alive when the police and ambulance showed up, but died several hours later. According to Johnson's lawyer, Bono had suffered four or five tremendous wounds, mostly to his chest and the one that stretched from his stomach to the base of his heart. Johnson was discovered two miles away from the site of the killing, walking down the road back to the Gladzels' home. Arnie said something along the lines of, something happened, I just can't remember, and was held at the Bridgeport Correctional Correctional Center on bail for 125000 So this was the first unlawful killing in the history of Brookfield, Connecticut. According to Debbie, the account is quite different. This is Arnie and Debbie's account of what happened. So that was Wanda, Wanda, who was uh, Arnie's cousin, I said. That was her account and what what was told to the police at this time. According to Arnie and Debbie, who have done interviews Decades later, um, according to Debbie's account, she says that Debbie, Arnie, Arnie, and Alan went to get drinks near the work and went back to Alan's apartment to party. And there was an altercation where Arnie and Debbie tried to leave. And uh, and Alan doesn't let them leave. Uh, Debbie says Arnie's eyes and whole face began to change, including his teeth. He began to stab Alan. And the knife was glowing on the floor when they found the knife, eventually. So this is actually what was featured in the latest Conjuring film. That that account of the story is that they are listening to music and they're partying after drinking. And Alan has some sort of altercation with Debbie and Arnie just goes ballistic and stabs Alan. So... The day after the killing, Lorraine Warren informed the Brookfield police that Johnson was possessed when the crime was committed. A media blitz soon surrounded the story, fueled in part by the Warrens, whose agents promised that the lectures, a book, and a movie detailing the gruesome case were in the works. Martin Manella, Johnson's lawyer, received calls from all over the world about what was being called the Demon Murder Trial. Manella traveled to England to meet with lawyers who had been involved in two similar cases, though neither went to trial. He planned to bring an, in an exorcism specialist from Europe and thread to supre- subpoena the priest who oversaw David Gladsell's exorcisms if they did not cooperate in the defense. The trial took place in Connecticut's Superior Court in Danbury beginning on October 28, 
1981. Ma- Manila attempted to submit a plea of not guilty by virtue of possession. So, can demon possession be used as a defense in a murder trial? That is the ultimate question. And the answer is no. No, no it cannot. Absolutely not. Um, there is no that. proof that you can put, you can be possessed by a demon. There is no proof that you could bring to court. So, presiding judge Robert Callahan promptly rejected this defense. Callahan argued that there is no such defense could ever exist in the court of law due to lack of evidence and that it would be irrelevant and unscientific to allow related testimony. The defense chose to imply that Johnson acted in self-defense. Because of this, the jury was not legally allowed to consider demonic possession as a viable explanation for the killing. Jury deliberated for 15 hours over three days before convicting Johnson on November 24, 1981, a first-degree manslaughter. Well, you killed a person. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. You killed someone, and that's... Also, like, just there being an actual altercation to beforehand to kind of trigger yeah. this event is kind of like, if it was possessed and then he just did it you know, randomly, you know, then, yeah. then there'd be a case, but it kind of seems weird. But I don't know. So on December 18, 1981, he was sent- sentenced to 10 to 20 years in prison, although he only served five. All right, that's... So he was out pretty quickly. Since being out of prison, he has not had any other violent violent activity, so we know of. Um, the incident led to the creation of a television film titled The Demon Murder uh, Case on NBC. And preparation for this film, the production of which was stalled due to internal conflicts, so that never came out. In 1983, Gerald Brittle, with the assistance of Lorraine Warrens, pu- published a book about the incident entitled The Devil in Connecticut. Lorraine Warren stated that profits from the book were shared with the family. Sources confirmed that 2000 was paid to the family by the book publisher. This is me looking at you, blinking, and then looking back. Right, I'm like- Upon the book's republication in 2006 by iUniverse, David Gladsell and his brother Carl Gladsell Jr. sued the authors and book publisher for violation of their right to privacy, libel, and intentional infliction of emotional distress. Carl also claimed that the book allegedly alleged he committed criminal and abusive acts against his family and others. So David and Carl claim that David was actually um, under a mental illness and that there was no demon possession. They, they have stated this. And so their testimony is quite different from what uh, Arnie and Debbie, who two very recently are still doing interviews. Um, I didn't mention my sources. My sources are, of course, Wikipedia, which I'm, most of this is from Wikipedia, obviously. Um, from 
the real conjuring uh so sorry the demonic case of arnie johnson which is from twisted minds and a few other videos on youtube but from mostly from the devil made me do it the shock doc that is on discovery plus where they do interview arnie johnson and debbie gladsell so they still to this day are being interviewed and i'm i'm assuming are still being paid so of course their claim that this is demon possession has not faltered because otherwise arnie johnson would be a murderer you know right yeah true (laughs) which honestly it sounds okay so i'll just get into this now it sounds to me like self-defense a hundred percent arnie johnson went through something very traumatic with this family that he was close with he witnessed david gladsell being possessed which is probably terrifying probably very confusing and extremely traumatic the family was under deep distress and the warrens probably took advantage of this and um definitely you know um uh, exploited the family I mean, and, they, and they made it real for these people they too. perpetuated this dark yeah. narrative and this evil thing and instead of getting them the help that they maybe needed made things worse you know but this is just my opinion and you know he had a very traumatic thing that happened to him then seeing alan bono possibly sexually assault his girlfriend and or his girlfriend's little sister who's nine years old you know which debbie and uh arnie's story leaves out mary being attacked so you know which makes sense that they would have a whole nother narrative that where she wasn't actually grabbed you know to kind of leave her out of it but seeing this go down can make a person snap you know and he snapped and he had a knife in his hand and he went for it that is self-defense that is manslaughter you know and maybe the devil is real maybe the devil is what possessed him maybe the devil was alan bono sexually assaulting a nine-year-old girl maybe that is what it is you know but this seems like a very bad situation for all parties you know and you know the devil can be definitely defined as many things and maybe it's paranormal maybe it is the humanity you know maybe it is humans just being terrible evil you know so anyways so carl glatzel sued the authors and the publishers for libel carl also claimed that the book alleged that he committed criminal and abusive acts against his family and others he said that the possession story was a hoax concocted 
that's a word, mm-hmm. concocted by Ed and Lorraine Warren to exploit the family and his brother's mental illness. And that the book presented him as the villain because he did not believe the supernatural claims. He asserted that the Warrens told him the story told him the story would make the family millionaires and it would help get Johnson out of jail. According to Carl Gladsell, the publicity generated by the incident forced him to drop out of school, lose friends, and business opportunities. In 2007, he began writing a book titled Alone Through the Valley about his version of the events surrounding his brother. Lorraine Warren defended her work with the family, claiming that the six priests who were involved in the incidents agreed at the time that the boy was possessed and the supernatural events she described were real. Brittle, author of The Devil in Connecticut, Brittle, author of The Devil in Connecticut, says he wrote the book because the family wanted the story told, that he possesses video of over 100 hours of the interviews with the family, and that they signed off on the book's book as accurate before it went to print. There is tons of recordings of these exorcisms, and you can find them on YouTube, and they are very disturbing. Very scary, very disturbing, and I will leave all of you up to looking up that on your own and making your own decisions for yourself. They are very compelling. Uh, I don't, I can't say anything about that. It is, it is scary. It is disturbing. Yeah. Gladsell's father, Carl Gladsell Sr., denies telling the author that his son was possessed. Johnson and Debbie now now married, wholeheartedly support the Warren's account of the demonic possession and have stated that the Gladsells in question are suing simply for monetary purpose. So, but Johnson and uh, Arnie and Debbie also have two children and, you know, they lived fairly happy regular lives, you know, other than, you know, maybe making some money still off of this, you know, and, you know, I can't be mad at them necessarily for trying to make a positive out of a negative and make money off of a bad situation. And unfortunately this tore the family apart. You know, uh, I don't know what their relationship is like now. I don't know who to believe, but interesting nonetheless. And the fact that there is a piece still from this case at a museum that you can go see (laughs) in Las Vegas Oh, it's so interesting. And, you know, I was talking to my parents today and trying to tell them about it. My mom, my parents believe in the supernatural, but when I was telling them about this, they were like, oh yeah, this sounds like they exploited it. This sounds Mm -hmm. like, you know, and they were on my, my opinion of it being that this, there is no black and white to this. This is such a gray area that this is not clear cut demon possession yeah but interesting nonetheless this is the first time the demon possession was ever used as a defense in a murder trial it did not work please don't do that don't ever do that um (laughs) don't go do something and say a demon made you do it um i myself have been possessed on many occasions where i have had a voice that has come out of me 
And I have done things that I've looked back on and thought, what possessed me to do that? Um, you know, but that is because, you know, and I'll admit that's because of trauma and, yeah. you know, Sorry. bad, slapping, but it's not funny. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, bad things that have been going on in my life, you know, at the time. And that can really make someone act out, you know, and I've had lapse in memory over things that, you know, I've done, you know, where I saw red, <laughs> you know, and maybe I should be seeing a therapist about that and maybe a priest, you know, um, but definitely interesting to say the least. And, uh, I don't know. The Warrens are very fascinating and I hope we do talk more about them you know, in the future with some of their other cases. And uh, we have not touched on the Amityville horror whatsoever. You know, that family still kind of claims that we did touch on that. Okay, never mind. We did touch on that. But that that family does claim that, you know, that they had taken advantage of the, Warrens the, the Warrens did, you know? So. It's hard to tell monetary gain but you're like well that's my story yeah is the devil you know is the devil this trauma is the devil this mental illness is the devil money is what is it you know what defines evil and i'll leave you all on that that is a great way to end this episode so yeah. chilling. <laughs> so that's the big dreams, my friends. Uh, stay spooky and follow us on. Uh, thanks, PJ. That's my cat meowing. Uh, follow <laughs> us on Twitter and on Instagram, and email us any suggestions at hollywoodshaunted at gmail Please like, subscribe, and share. Visit our Patreon. Give us money. The root of all evil.